and presenting it back to the user in a very, very helpful format. ChatGPT3 isn't linked to the internet, but it's trained on... and welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, Tuesday the 13th of December, Kor Anna Thomas Aho. Coming up, we'll ask Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis if she reckons the TVNZ-RNZ merger is a lame duck. Oh no, it's 9pm on Christmas Eve and you forgot to buy a last minute present for Uncle Bert, what do you do? The Blackburns are on a tour of Aotearoa. We talk to Alana Bremner about the post-World Cup celebrations. And what is it really like selling your house privately? One Auckland family has cut out the middleman. I'm a little bit surprised that more people don't opt for private sales. I kind of feel that similar to travel agents, that there was more of a place for real estate agents before the internet came along. Marie and welcome to First Up. Great to be with you again this morning. I am Anna Thomas. Now let's begin this morning in the United Kingdom where three children have died after falling into an icy lake. With me now from London is our correspondent Henry Riley. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Anna. This is a tragedy, isn't it? It's, oh, can't believe how awful this must be for the family and everyone concerned. How did it happen? It's absolutely terrible. Um, And as you say, we now know that three boys aged eight, aged 10 and age 11 have now died uh, after falling into this icy lake near Solihull, which is in the West Midlands of the UK. In fact, we'd be getting some details from one of the senior officers at the relevant constabulary. And he was trying to fight back emotion as he was explaining that one of the police officers actually tried to physically punch the ice and break (sighs) the ice in order to save the children. Um, It's important to say that there's a fourth boy, six years old. He remains in a critical condition in hospital. They all suffered cardiac arrests after uh, plunging into the water. The police officers seem to have been heroically brave at this point. They jumped in with sort of, you know, not the appropriate clothing, with no regard for their own safety, as their chief officer put it. Mm. And it's it's not very clear as to why they were out uh, doing this at the time, whether it was, um, you know, whether they were with anyone else. Uh, obviously, they're all under 12 years old, whether they were doing it in their leisure time. That remains to be seen. But regardless of what the circumstances were, it's quite clear there's been a tragic outcome. Oh, it's just awful. Um, was it a, is it a popular place at all for families? Is there ice skating or do we know anything like that? Any of those details? No, I mean, all we know is it's, it's a very rural part of the UK. Mm. And so it it is, you know, a place where many people go for walks. It's a place where you go and enjoy the countryside. And they obviously, it's you know, it's it's a fairly well-known lake in the area. I'm uh, I'm led to believe, and so mm. they were, you know, on on that particular lake. Not not quite sure why at this stage, but um, but yeah, not it's not a sort of tourist hotspot, no. Right, and and of course the weather in the UK has been pretty awful of late, with heavy snow and extreme cold. What's it, what's it like where you are in London? Yeah, I mean, it's very cold. I'm looking out of my window uh, in London to, uh, you know, inches worth of snow. It caused absolute chaos uh, in the early hours of this morning. One of our most popular motorways, the sort of ring road that goes around London, the M25, was completely closed in certain parts because we were completely unaware and ill-prepared for this happening. We knew there was a risk of snow, of course. The temperature plunged to minus six at one point over the weekend, but there was clearly not a 
adequate enough plan when it came to gritting and salting various parts of the road. And it meant that of that key motorway that I mentioned, uh, at various points in the night, and indeed up until about eight o'clock this morning UK time, it was completely shut, meaning we've had to travel chaos for, for the whole morning. And the afternoon has been spent people trying to catch up with that. Oh, and what, what about flights um, and, and your airports, at, uh, at, you know, Heathrow and, and the others, Sandstead? Yeah, again, major, major disruption at all of them. Stansted Airport had to cancel many of their flights. Yesterday evening, we saw Gatwick, which was one of our main airports uh, as well. They came out and said they were essentially having to close the runway. Manchester Airport, the same up north here in the UK. And again, this morning, it's caused many flights to be delayed and cancelled in many cases. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue that has affected, as I say, London Airport, Stansted, Gatwick and Heathrow, but also further afield in places such as Manchester and also Birmingham has had severe cancellations as well. Yeah. Oh, you know, the idea of a, of a sort of a white Christmas is always very appealing, but the reality is something quite different, isn't it? <laughs> but um, yes, speaking of frosty and cold, uh, how is that uh, Harry and Meghan series being greeted in the UK? Well, do you know what? It's it's what everyone is, other than the football, which I hope we won't go into, uh, it's <laughs> yeah, what no. everyone is talking about <laughs> at the moment. I mean, it really has been a sort of incredible uh, soap opera. It's, you know, people are glued to Netflix at the moment. They saw the first three episodes come out last week. We then saw, obviously, today a new trailer come out where it looks like we haven't actually seen anywhere near the, the, the main bombshell of the series. Prince Harry coming out and saying quite clearly they lied to protect my brother, of course, that being the, the future king next in line to the throne, Prince William, and holding back no punches. We've seen some lighthearted moments about them talking about the dance that they first uh, danced to, Harry and Meghan, but it looks like we're going to get some serious insight into the feud that was well known, but not really, we didn't really know the details between the two brothers, Harry and William. Mm. I'm sort of undecided on on that docu-series. Um, well, now, what about uh, widespread industrial action apparently is expected? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's really is the week of strikes in the UK. So tomorrow we've got the RMT on strike. That's our Rail Maritime Union, mainly train workers, people who work at the stations, people who work on the London Underground and indeed some train drivers. On Thursday, we have nurses going out on strike and the government under pressure here because we saw a similar thing in the 1970s when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and she was very Mm. tough it's sort of facing down the unions and the same is happening again we're at a point where inflation in the uk is extremely high at 11.1 percent people aren't getting anywhere near that in terms of a pay rise a pay increase that's not just in the public sector that's also in the private sector and so it's all very well the government have been playing a sort of war of words with the rail unions, saying well isn't it outrageous them shutting down these services and then wanting ridiculous amounts of money to some extent, that's a clever strategy. But when it comes to nurses, you'll remember in the pandemic, we were stood outside on our doorsteps clapping the nurses. Well, mm. there's a lot of public sympathy when it comes to nurses. And for them to go out on strike, yes, some people will have certain delayed appointments, they'll have postponements when it comes to critical care. But equally, there seems to be a sense that the public uh, have much sympathy with the nurses. And so it's, a, it's less clear cut uh, as opposed to a conflict compared to the rail workers. Uh, Henry Riley, hey, thanks so much. I'm going to save you from the uh, talking about uh, England and the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Till next time. Thanks so much, Henry.
Right, moving right along and two Queensland police officers and a member of the public have been shot dead at a rural property 270 kilometres west of Brisbane. A fourth officer was injured and managed to escape the property. The officers were at the property investigating reports of a missing person from New South Wales when the attack happened. Police Commissioner Katerina Carroll addressed media last night. For operational reasons, there is limited information that I will give you. I will make a statement... However, I cannot take further questions this evening. I will give you further information early in the morning uh, where media uh, will assemble at Chinchilla Police Station. It is with deep sadness that I confirm the deaths of three people, including two officers during incident in the Western Downs late this afternoon. Four officers attended a property on Waynes Road in Wyambilla in relation to a reported missing person from New South Wales. Tragically, while in attendance, two officers were shot and declared deceased at the scene. A member of the public was also shot and is deceased. Another officer received a bullet graze and is receiving treatment in hospital. A fourth officer managed to escape the property and is also receiving treatment. The offenders are yet to be taken into custody. An operation, as I said, is currently unfolding at the location this evening involving Polair and specialist police. We urge the public to stay away from this exclusion zone. While we are yet to learn the full extent of what has occurred today, We do know this event is extraordinarily distressing on many levels. I extend my heartfelt condolences to the officers' families, friends and colleagues. Our thoughts are with them during this extremely difficult time. Those officers paid the ultimate sacrifice to keep our community safe. I would like to also pay tribute to all police and first responders who assisted at the scene and are continuing to respond this evening. Tragically, this is is the largest loss of life we have suffered in one single incident in recent times. It is devastating news and I know that it will deeply be felt across Queensland. It is, sadly, a reminder of the unpredictable nature of policing and the incredible dangers our office face while protecting our community. I know the days and weeks ahead will be particularly difficult for families and the police family. We are an organisation in mourning tonight and at the appropriate time we will honour the sacrifice these officers have made for us. Flags will be flown at half-mast at all police stations tomorrow. Our priority right now is to ensure those responsibles are brought to justice and that family, friends and colleagues of the officers involved are being supported as much as possible. Thank you. And that was Queensland Police Commissioner Katerina Carroll. No doubt we will hear more on the story throughout the morning on Morning Report.
It is first up's last week of 2022 and hopefully many of us will be enjoying the summer break. Um, so we've decided to help out by giving you a guide to summer events in the main regions on a budget, um, especially with the cost of living issues being top of mind. So I talked with Nicola Grenwell, who is the uh, CEO of Hamilton and Waikato Tourism, who has lots for tourists and locals alike. We have got so much on offer. On our website, we've even put together a very cunning and quick quick list for everybody, top 10 summer activities in the Wakato. Um, there's a range of walking trails, underground activities, animal encounters, all on that website. Great. Now, what are some of your favourite things to do? Look, heading to the beach, you know, good Kiwi summer, always head to the beach, raglan, that West Hand Surf Break, a lot of lot of fish and chips, sunsets out there at Raglan, beautiful. And did you know we have our own hot water beach here in Kafia? I did not know that. I don't think there I've been there. Oh my gosh, there I'll put go. that on the list. So hot water beach at Kafia, sunset, beautiful. And doesn't require any money, hey? No money, just a spade. Then you, just... Can hire, you can actually hire those from the shop, so just a little spade. Oh, great. Or you can take your own, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, you know. also you've got those attractions like the zoo and, and the beautiful Hamilton Gardens. Hamilton Gardens. No one can leave Hamilton without seeing the Hamilton Gardens. They are just beautiful. And we've got new gardens that have opened just in the last couple of months. So if you been, haven't been for the, a little while, it's time to go again. What are they likely to see at the gardens? You know, what, what, and, and tell us a little bit about the uh, the new gardens that opened. Was it the Egyptian? Was it an Egyptian the, thing? The, that's right. The Egyptian garden has opened. It is stunning, and we often think of Egyptian as dusty, grey, sandy coloured looking structures, but actually the colours are just phenomenal, and it's really worth a visit. Now I am a little bit of a cyclist, and okay. I've got both a normal pedal and an e-bike, of course. Right. <laughs> what have you got for me in we, that range of things? Absolutely. So Tiawa River Ride, the new section, has actually just been opened by our mayor today. So that means that you can cycle from Narawahia in the northern part of our region through to Lake Katapiro in the in the middle of our region, 65 kilometres along the Great Waikato River. Beautiful. Beautiful. Is, is it graded? Like, is it uh, is it tricky, or can anyone? Uh, no, it's tickle a three that? meter wide concrete path. It is easy. Anyone oh, can wow. do it. Oh wow! Oh, concrete. Yeah. I love that. On concrete. <laughs> so, in a in a range of boardwalks, it's phenomenal. The new piece is beautiful, and of course, further afield, we've got the Hauraki Rail Trail from Tiaraha to Matamata, and then in the southern part, the Timber Trail, which is a little bit more adventurous, but certainly there for the cyclists, a true hard. Actually, I did do the timber trail. Possibly a little, a little, a little bit too much for my skill level. <laughs> I struggled, got off the bike a few times, People and did it. push it. But it, it is absolutely stunning. And I did uh, come across quite a few of the walkers uh, doing the Tiaroa Trail on that That's timber right. trail, which was uh, fantastic. It is a my gosh, those views on the timber trail are quite spectacular. And a couple of lodges as well. You can stay at, I know, you know, but we stayed overnight at one of them as well. What are you Absolutely. going to do, Nicola? What do, What are your plans? I'll probably hit that Tiawa 
river ride and check out that new part of the journey. But we're also, I've got to put in here, we produce over 70% of New Zealand berries are grown here in the Mighty Wakato. So I'll be out there picking some berries and getting into that berry ice cream and trying some of the berry-infused menu options that many of our eateries are, are showcasing this season. So all things berries are being celebrated. <laughs> and they're very good for your house. Absolutely. Uh, Now tell us about the Sevens. The Sevens, yes, unfortunately, it's the final year for the Sevens here in well, here in New Zealand, but being hosted here in Hamilton, Kirikiridoa, um in January. So, you know, it's sad to see it go, but I think that it's a really good opportunity and reminder for people to not become complacent with some of our events that we see. So, you know, they, they might not be there forever, so get out there and get into the Sevens and enjoy them. We've also got the Hamilton Garden Arts Festival this summer, Gourmet in the Gardens every Sunday. There's lots going on in the event space. Uh, now, can we just talk food for a moment? Um, <laughs> it's uh, one of my favourite subjects, and uh, in particular fish and chips. All right. <laughs> what, okay. what is your favourite fish and chip shop? has to be on the wharf at Raglan. I mean, it's just beautiful out there and it doesn't get any fresher than that, right, when you're right beside the water. The Raglan's beautiful fish and chip and, and then watch the sunset. It's it's a stunning, really beautiful Sunday afternoon trip, that's for sure. Do you ever jump off the wharf into the water? No, I'm far <laughs> too old for that. Oh, never yeah. too old. You're never too old to go swimming or jumping off the wharf. <laughs> oh, no, not off the wharf. Yeah, I think that's more jumping off the bridge at Raglan. But, you know, oh, the bridge, things yeah. all have to be done, done safely and um, at the right time and, and what have you. So if that's your, your thing, then just please make sure the tide is, in, is right for you and you're safe. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Safety first, always, always. And, of course, it's, it's so much easier from Auckland to get to Kirikiriroa with the um, with the expressway. It is a phenomenal piece of road and the, the bridges that are on that expressway are engineering feats in their own, so own right. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely accessible for day trip, for weekend trip. Come on down Hamilton Auckland people and get into the mighty Wakato. Sounds fantastic and I look forward to maybe seeing you down there, Nicola. The fish and chip shop at Raglan, right? You might be jumping off the bridge while I'm eating my fish and chip. <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds great. I'll bring you tomato sauce. <laughs> okay, right. Sounds good. And Nicola Greenwell, for the CEO of Hamilton and Waikato Tourism. Thanks so much for joining us on First Up. Wonderful. Um, And we're going to stick with the theme of Christmas and we are back for another Christmas-related question this morning and it's one most of us can probably relate to at one point or another. Uh, You've forgotten to buy a present for a key relative who is coming around for Christmas lunch, but it's 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve. What do you do? A box of chocolates that I've been gifted, re-gifted. Panic. (laughs) Chocolates. Wine. Panic. And then... (laughs) give them a call on Christmas Day so they know I was still thinking of them even though I'd forgotten them. I'd re-wrap a candle I haven't used. Well, I'm a really terrible gift buyer and I love getting people lotto and scratchies and I'll just go and go get $40 worth of instant kiwi. <laughs> Probably a bottle of booze and a, you know, two-year-old card out of the cupboard that's still hanging around. <laughs> Always something out of my own closet or a, a, a gift, something that I've gotten myself to re-gift it. I guess if you screwed up, you screwed up. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before. I've been at, you know, the warehouse or whatever's open till midnight, yeah, doing that last minute stuff, so yep, I quickly nip out and try okay. and find something. It's too late then because we're having our family 
Christmas this year on Christmas Eve. So, oh. yes, so yeah, far too late. <laughs> what if, as you're driving to your Christmas event, you realise you've forgotten something? I guess we could call and get a box of chocolates or something. Box of chocolates. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, it's Christmas Eve, and you've forgotten you've uh, forgotten to buy a present for a key relative, Auntie Auntie Maureen. What are you going to do? All the shops are shut. I'll give her, um, I'll make a wee gift voucher telling her that I'll um, take her out for lunch or um, bake her, make her a dinner or bake her a cake or something. That's a good idea, so you just write out the gift voucher yeah, as well. Decorate it and put it in an envelope and give it to her for Christmas. Let's say it's Christmas Eve, 11 o'clock at night, say you forgot to buy a present for your auntie. What do you do? Just give her my love and that's all I can give. Oh. If I can't <laughs> afford anything, I'll sew up and... Say hi, we made it to the Christmas, that's all we can do. Like, it's all good. Yeah. Oh, you're very sweet. <laughs> re-gifting. I think you can't go past re-gifting. You know, Christmas morning, you unwrap the presents, you think, oh, I don't think I'll use that. I'll give that to Uncle Bert. Yeah, yeah. What is your last-minute present? Uh, let me know, 2101. And uh, Pete McElwain is in here with the, with the news headlines. Pete, what's your last-minute gift you could give to someone if you're in that situation? Hi, Anna. Uh, <laughs> usually keep a bottle of cheeky Chardonnay or Pinot oh. Noir sort of stored away for an emergency. Great idea. Yeah. That's very good. <laughs> okay, I like that. We'll, we'll take that one. We'll use that one. Now coming up, we talk to Black Fern Alana Bremner about the team's tour of Aotearoa and post-World Cup celebrations. We hear why uh, one family is trying to sell their house without a real estate agent. And we ask Nationals Nicola Willis about her leader, implying that gang life might look attractive to youth who congregate in South Auckland garages. But uh, it is time to check in with the local democracy reporting program now. And this morning we are in Greymouth with Brendan McMahon. Morena, Brendan, how are you this morning? Oh, good morning. Um, I'm not in Greymouth, I'm in Kamara. Oh, you're in Kamara. Excellent. Yeah. Just, close to, just, uh, just down the road or up the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> Hey, now tell us but about it. It's, it's a good morning. It's a good morning. Good morning. Tell yeah. us about the new visitor experience at Fox Glacier. Yes, so to Kopekopeko Otawaka, which um, is a few kilometres west of uh, Fox Glacier Township, uh, was... Um, Opened on Saturday. Uh, it's the first uh, Taha Whenua site in the South Island, representing an Iwi story, and um, first time that a site's been nominated as such by Mana Whenua. So it's quite significant. Um, it has uh, been created essentially in response to the, the events around 2019, which finally severed the access um, road to Fox Glacier, um, meaning that people have no option but to fly or, or walk quite a long way. So, yes, what can visitors see there? So, well, they can see the glacier in its full glory, um, albeit from a, a long way away. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's a symbolic walker on the ground uh, representing the creation story of Naitahu um, and, at that area, um, which leads you through to the view of of the glacier, and on a good day, uh, uh, Reiki Mount Cook as well. Oh, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, now, at the same time, though, councils are getting pretty desperate for support to help the region develop. I mean, this is a, a lovely start, but um, but but you know, what what else is happening there? Well, um, there's a lot of promise, I guess, around um, infrastructure. 
clearly we have had quite a have, have climate change and weather events, which uh, mean that the, the west coast, with its, which is a long region, 650 kilometres, has quite a few challenges at the moment. So we're, um, well, what I've been covering, I guess, is has been quite a, a few stories around um, broken infrastructure, which um, Franz Joseph Glacier is another um, example where the, 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 the access to the glacier has been severed in more recent times from changes in the river and and, and obviously climate um, change affecting that. Uh, we've had COVID and, of course, the tourist um, industry in that area has been severely affected. Mm. Uh, and, of course, and issues, of course, getting staff into the region as well. Um, and what about the delays to the uh, flood protection scheme at Franz Joseph? Yes, yeah, so that's that's been uh, a big promise now for several years, um, a $24 million flood protection scheme for both sides of the river, um, which have which has been, half of it's been authorised, um, half of it was supposed to have started earlier in the year. Uh, it's delayed now again um, due to um, consenting issues uh, at, at the, in the area, which means that um, yeah, the summer flood season is almost upon us. We get big rivers at this time of the year, uh, so you know people worry about such things. And and of course, the future of Franz Joseph Township it's a it's a stopgap measure really. The flood protection um, has has yet to be decided. Mm-hmm. Okay, hey, well, look, um, thanks, Brendan McMahon, uh, local democracy reporting uh, program there based uh, in Kumara um, this morning. Right. It is. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. And it's indeed business time. Joining us now from our business team with the beauty, brawn and brains, the triple threat is Giles Beckford. Good morning, Giles. Goodness me, it's the first time I've heard that one thrown at me, ever. <laughs> ah, what are you focusing on this morning? Well, one of the things that uh, we found uh, quite interesting, there's a little part of the finance market, the banking market, called non-deposit uh, or non-bank deposit takers. And these are the... The credit unions, the building societies. Now, you know, our grandparents, of course, know about these things uh, only too well because uh, they were quite substantial financial institutions. They were often built around certain communities or certain places of work uh, long before the banks got to be the big, muscly, mm. behemoths and mathemists that they are now. Uh, but about 150,000 Kiwis uh, are still using these uh, small institutions. They usually own them as members, uh, so whatever profits they make go back to the members, but like the co-op bank. Uh, they have a concern. There's a law going through at the moment, which is basically updating the regulation of the banks. It's uh, looking for one big umbrella to, uh, say, the banks with a regulator, which is the Reserve Bank, uh, and here is the set of rules that will apply to everybody. And these small organisations say, look, this will cost us an arm and a leg, and frankly, you know, a lot of these things don't apply to us. You know, uh, a small credit union that may turn over... 
five or ten million dollars a year, right? Can't mm. be put in the same league as the ANZ, which is turning over two hundred billion dollars a year.、Mm. Uh, and they're saying, look, can we just have some sort of, you know, some rules apply to the small people like us,、uh, and then the really hefty ones where you want to make sure that the banks don't go down the toilet, that they got plenty of money、uh, in their coffers,、um, yet. Put the top, the the strictest and strongest rules、uh, to apply to them. This is the same bill that will bring in、uh, the deposit guarantee scheme. So for every hundred thousand dollars in a bank account, there'll be an insurance、uh, policy, so to speak, if the bank should get into trouble. Now, once again, you know, the credit unions and building societies are saying, you know, we look after a lot of people here, but you know, can we just? Have some sense about this.、Uh, I had a long chat with、uh, one of their representatives、uh, the other day. Their concern is they're not being listened to by Parliament. They went down to the Select Committee where the bill's currently being、uh, considered,、uh, and they were told,、mm, "Yeah, okay, yeah, well, thanks, yeah, well, thanks for your views. We'll we'll take it into account." They'd like it to be taken most definitely into account.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, an interesting one there. As I say, about one hundred and fifty thousand Kiwis involved in there. They they turn over collectively about three billion dollars a year. So, they're not necessarily just loose change. But in the big、uh, scheme of things, when the big four Aussie banks control eighty percent plus of the market, you've got to say these little organisations they do serve、uh, a purpose. They look after people who sometimes can't get.、Uh, The sort of help that big banks、uh, don't want to give them because there's no margin in them. So, you know, interesting point of view. We'll keep that one followed. Now, I know, I know, Jeremy didn't get his act together, and so he hasn't given you any foreign currencies. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got a challenge for you. I came a across. A, yeah, a challenge. I came across a word last week、um, at this tech conference thing.、Uh, it was a new word I'd never heard of before, and、uh, the challenge is for you to use it in the business news tomorrow. And the word is cooperation. Cooperation. Yeah, yeah. Cooperation sounds like an oxymoron to me. So it's a, a combination of cooperation and competition.、Oh, weird, weird. Anyway, that's your challenge for tomorrow. You, you leave it with me. I will do it <laughs> very quickly. I can tell you, your Kiwi will buy sixty three point six US, ninety four and a half Aussie, fifty two British pence. I've got nothing exotic. I'll have some exotic currencies for you tomorrow. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely. Charles Beckford,、uh, speak tomorrow. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at ten to seven. Now the Black Ferns have been. Touring the country this month, stopping in、uh, towns all over the place to connect with fans and celebrate their World Cup heroics. Today, they'll be in Wellington for a public reception on the steps of Parliament. I spoke with Blackfern Alana Bremner about what celebrations have been like post World Cup. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's kind of still continuing. We had some awesome team events afterwards, and then. Lots of girls who've been around the country have been into kind of federal schools, and lots of them have had parades in their hometowns. And the trophy tour is happening right right now. So Nancy, the trophy is coming to Christchurch today, and we're going to be into a few schools and then have a public event. So it's been pretty cool seeing the excitement continue. And yeah, looking forward to the Parliament event we have doing back in the team next Tuesday. Oh, fantastic! And what sort of reaction have you been getting from the fans? It's just been insane. I guess just seeing the amount of people that have been, you know, inspired by what we we're able to do. Lots of, you know, young kids, girls and boys, saying, you know, they've picked up a rugby ball and want to start playing now. And how much it excited the nation has been really cool to see.
Did you expect any of this, you know, when you, when you started? Well, in fact, firstly, how long have you been playing rugby for, Alana? I started playing when I was about seven for a club called Banks Peninsula. And I guess, yeah, we didn't really, you know, have females rugby with the Black Ferns. wasn't available on TV as often as it is now. So it's pretty cool now knowing girls can turn on the TV and see some role models and people they want to aspire to be. Oh, absolutely. So so who was your inspiration for starting? For me, I went along with my best friend because she wanted to play and didn't want to be the only girl on the team. <laughs> yeah. um, and growing up watching the watching the men, I always liked Richard McCorran. And <laughs> it probably wasn't for a while until I started playing Canterbury UCC till I started to know some black ferns and I got to play alongside some amazing ones like Stisha Hardy Fox and Kendra Coxedge and that's kind of when I realised there was a pathway. And now for it to be professional is pretty exciting. Yeah. So did you and Chelsea, um, did you practice and play together or did, did she start first and then you joined or how did it work? No, Chelsea was actually very late coming to rugby. She was netball until she was 21. So yeah, 21 she was when she first picked up a rugby ball and yeah, hasn't looked back since. <laughs> but yeah, no, there was a lot of um, tackling and things going on in the yard as as youngsters in Little River. Yeah, I was going to say, is there much competition between you sisters? Well, yeah, I said a lot, but not really. Like, we train really hard and work really hard together, and I think it's something pretty cool being able to have your sibling play alongside in, in, alongside you and have all these crazy experiences that we get to, but um, always pushing each other to be better. Yeah, I bet. It must be wonderful. Now, has there been any particular, I don't know, a, a young young person who's come up to you and who, who has said something to you that you've been really struck by? Anything that um, that you can remember that you can share with us? Probably we went out to Little River School the other day, which was really special um, out when we first, where I first started playing. And we had a young girl travel an hour over the hill and she was in tears when we were walking down and she'd brought all her trophies she'd got that year. Oh. Got a picture with us and she was just so excited. And then just hearing the teacher say that, you know, some girls made the switch to rugby after seeing us on TV. Oh. So I think just little stories like that is, is pretty cool. Oh, that's beautiful. Your parents must be very proud. Yeah, no, they're amazing. We were pretty lucky to have them follow us around the country. They managed to come to every game, biggest supporters and... Yeah, huge credit of our success goes to them. You know, they drive us to training till younger and I guess their values and things they put into us growing up has been has been really cool. We're lucky to have them. Oh, how wonderful. Um, and it, what's the plan over summer? Do you get some downtime or does the training continue? Yeah, we've had, we get to train from wherever we want to, which is quite cool. So just lots of time with our friends and family and away for a little bit to Twizel and Wanaka and then the girls will assemble again um, kind of like nights of gym so yeah it'll be quite nice to just train elsewhere and get off the rugby field and <laughs> connect again early gym. <laughs> yeah. And have you got a message for any of the supporters Alana? Just thank you so much it's been incredible the support it's something we'd never have imagined at the start of the World Cup and we're heading around New Zealand currently so come on down, come see us we'd love to see you all there. Beautiful, that's uh, Black Fern Alana Bremner.
It is 18 minutes to six. I'm Anna Thomas and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis tells us if she thinks the TVNZ-RNZ merger is a lame duck. And what is it like selling a house without a real estate agent? We meet a family that's cut out the middleman. Now, summertime is usually a popular time to sell your house, but have you thought about selling it privately? You can save a bit of money, but do you need the hassle? We decided to speak to a young Auckland couple who are taking the DIY approach, so contacted Christy and Davian Lawson. Now, Christy explained how they've been navigating what at first seemed like a lengthy and complicated process. Yeah, well, I understand that most people don't sell privately, but we've just never really been that impressed with the real estate agents that we have come across in our property buying journey in the past. When we were house hunting, we would ask agents really simple questions about the properties that we were looking at and they didn't seem to be able to answer those questions, which was a little bit frustrating. Um, I really like the idea of being able to talk directly with the homeowner as because they know the property best and they're going to be able to answer all of those questions. We've also found that occasionally we've come across agents that were not particularly proactive with following up. So we would either show interest via an email message in a property or we'd go to an open home and then no one would ever bother to get in contact with us afterwards. So yeah, we just thought we would give it a go. We looked at all of the things that real estate agents supply and we felt that we could organize those things ourselves. The photos, the video, the signage, the online promotions, we just thought that we would give it a go. I really also like that it's a little bit less of a transactional thing when you're dealing with people directly, that you can connect with people and maybe find the right match for your home. That's dead right. So, you know, certain houses suit certain people and you get to know that once, you know, if you are meeting them in person, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, so how much work has it been? So I, I, your your partner, Davian, he is a, a photographer and videographer. So that makes that part easy, doesn't it, when you're promoting yeah, so the house? It made sense for us to do our own photography and video because Davian does run a video production business. But um, in saying that, it is pretty easy to outsource that stuff to somebody else and far more cost effective than going through an agent. I think much of the work of bringing a house to market has to be done regardless of whether or not you have a property agent. So that's things like renovations and decluttering and cleaning. I don't know if, if maybe if real estate agents offered to come and clean my house, I might, I'd be more keen. <laughs> yeah, um, I like that idea. And then we just, <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. Sorting signage was a pretty simple process. And then, of course, you've just got to organize the online promotional content. So we put a listing up on TradeMe. We have open homes, which we'd have to have anyway. I guess the only difference is we don't have to go and leave the house. We just stay here and greet people as they come in and answer any questions that they might have. We've organized a lawyer to sort the legal paperwork, but it's been mostly pretty straightforward so far. And uh, I suppose the great thing about organising your own open homes is that you control when is suitable and, and you know, what time suits, all of that sort of stuff. And you can yeah, keep an eye on the a, people coming through. You have a lot more flexibility. I think I think it's meant so far so good. I'm a little bit surprised that more people don't opt for private sales. I kind of feel that similar to travel agents, that there was more of a place for real estate agents before the internet came along. But yeah. I think that people can far more easily connect with one another now without the need for that middleman or middlewoman. You can just do it directly. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people also feel, oh, you've, you know, lawyers, you've got to get lawyers involved and, and there's so many legal documents to, to sign. Uh, has that process been quite simple for you? Obviously, you haven't sold the house yet, but, but getting a, a conveyancer on board? Yeah, no, well, I think you have to you have to organise lawyers regardless of whether or not there's an agent involved. And it's been pretty, as I said, pretty straightforward. We haven't got to the point where we're, you know, organising the sales agreements and things yet, but it's a relatively straightforward process from what I can gather. I think lots of people like to, st- they like to stick with the status quo. So it's maybe a fear of the unknown and a little bit of lack of confidence. And maybe they think it's a lot more complicated than it actually is. But yeah, selling privately isn't the norm in New Zealand. I think around 14% of homes were sold privately in New Zealand last year. Mm. But I think it's just a matter of people seeing that other people can do it successfully and maybe they could give it a go themselves as well. I think unless you're extremely time poor, maybe it's worth considering selling privately. There are lots of resources out there to help you if you want to do it yourself. How much money do you think in the, when you come to sell your home, how comfortable are you going to uh, going into the negotiations? I feel like we've done our research to see what things are selling for around us that are similar to our property. It's not something I feel uncomfortable with talking about money with people. I think we just decide on what our bottom line is and then find out from other people whether they have any flexibility and and go from there and just be as honest as you can. You'd have to do that anyway, coming to a, a decision about the price regardless of whether you've got an agent involved. It's just you don't have someone pressuring you to decide whether or not you should lower it because I often think, I wonder whether there's the motivation for real estate agents to get the best price for your property because it's far easier for them to sell quickly rather than investing that time Mm. to find the right buyer for you because the extra money that they would make is so minimal. It really doesn't justify the extra time they have to spend to find that buyer. And I suppose uh, with the final sale price, you'll be able to knock that price down because you're not paying the, what is it, I think it's 4% for the first 400000 that uh, real estate agents charge. Yeah, then, so that's a lot of money. It's a, lot, it's, it's a bit more flexibility, I guess, you have in the negotiation process. And that was Christy Lawson. We wish the family all the best for selling their home. Now, it now seems far from certain whether the proposed merger of RNZ and TVNZ will go ahead after the Prime Minister said Cabinet will be looking at where to trim back over summer when asked about the deal. Uh, We discussed Jacinda Ardern's comments and the merger in general with the Deputy Leader of the National Party, Nicola Willis. But our producer, Matthew Tunison, began by asking what her leader, Christopher Luxon, meant when he said gang life might look attractive to youth congregating in South Auckland garages. Are teenagers more likely to become involved with gangs if they hang out in garages? Look, I doubt it. Obviously, people across the country use garages for all sorts of reasons. And Christopher has been very clear that his comments weren't intended to be derogatory about South Auckland. His point was one that has been made to him by community workers, that there are some young people who don't see great prospects for their lives and do see something enticing about the gangs. And that's what his comments were about. All right. Do you accept that they were badly judged and that they were insulting to to some people? Look, I think some people have read a lot more into them than was ever intended. And I know Chris well. I know that he has huge respect for New Zealanders across the country and didn't mean any insult by his remarks. All right. On uh, Morning Report yesterday, the Prime Minister was 
quite opaque when she was asked about the uh, future of the TVNZ-RNZ merger. So what I've said to my um, Cabinet colleagues is that over the summer period, I want every one of our Cabinet colleagues to be looking through the things that they have on their agenda and just asking ourselves whether or not, either from a spending perspective, an investment perspective, or just from a focus perspective, those are things that we should be prioritising at this point in time. That's an exercise I expect everyone to undertake over summer. Now, Nicola Willis, does that sound to you like the Prime Minister is fully committed to getting this merger over the line? That sounds like the death knell for the merger to me. I think the pity is that the Prime Minister and the Cabinet didn't do this exercise a year or two years or three years ago. Every dollar of public money should be committed to those things which are are a priority. And I'm yet to meet a New Zealander who says they want their taxpayer money invested in a merger of Television New Zealand and Radio New Zealand. It's always been solution looking for a problem and I think the government would be wise to can it. All right, and even if it does go ahead and National wins the next election, it would be scrapped, right? So we'd be pretty unwise to uh, clear out our desks too quickly. That's right. We want two independent voices, Television New Zealand and Radio New Zealand. We've committed to unwinding any merger because it's clear that in the longer run that would actually save money. Do you know how much it's cost so far work on this uh, merger process? I don't know, but I know $370 million was earmarked for the change process and that many millions have already been spent on highly paid consultants and I'd hate to think what the bill tallies up to. It's money that's gone in the wrong place, but that doesn't mean there's a good reason to throw good money after bad. And I don't need to tell you about this, Nicola, but with such prominence of fake news conspiracy theories just everywhere you look at the moment. So it's arguably never more important to have reliable sources of of news. What commitments is National making to our, our publicly funded broadcasters should National form the next government? Well, we've committed that we want to see both Television New Zealand and Radio New Zealand continue to offer public broadcasting. One of the concerns that people raise with me is that there are fewer media voices today than there were, say, even a decade ago. And so to us, there's actually value in having those two distinct public broadcasting voices rather than merging them into one entity. Can we expect more investment in RNZ or TVNZ or less? Well, we are always careful with taxpayers' money. What we want to see is a good service offered. With Television New Zealand, we think the model in which commercial revenue is raised through advertising makes good sense, and we want to see Radio New Zealand continue in a robust form. Either way, death now for the uh, the merged entity, you reckon? Well, it should never have been put on the table. It's an ideological project, and it's not one that we're prepared to continue. More bad news for the government yesterday, that's Monday, with the Chief Ombudsman finding that MB acted unreasonably in its management of the managed isolation system during COVID. What, do you, what did you make of the findings? Look, I, I read the summary of this report, and my hat goes off to the Ombudsman, because he's given a voice of authority to a concern that was held in the hearts of so many New Zealanders who were trapped offshore during the lockdown. And their stories are harrowing, and they were treated unfairly. We've now had the courts make that finding and the ombudsman make that finding. We had a lottery of human misery being operated by the government. It was always wrong, and it's good to have these very clear findings. 
I hope we see an apology from the government to those who've made these complaints. Also, something else you've been calling for a while is a rejig to the immigration settings, which Minister Woods and the Prime Minister announced yesterday a series of a suite of changes, I think they, they called it. What did you make of that? Were you pleased? Look, I was pleased on behalf of all of the nurses and medical professionals in our completely stretched health system at the moment. They have been run ragged, doing it really tough because the government has been so stubborn about those immigration settings. We've been calling for this change for months. We'd rather it happen now than never. But my fear is that a lot of damage has already been done. Many, many nurses have been scared off the idea of coming to New Zealand because of our backward settings. Uh, So I just hope that we can now turn it around. Mm. I didn't see anything for the poor old hospitality sector in there. uh, Is that disappointing? Well, I think the hospitality sector are finding it really tricky. In Auckland today, I saw a couple of restaurants advertising that they'd only be open a few nights a week because they just don't have the staff to be opening. And I'm sure that's gutting for them at this time of year when obviously they want to be making more money out of the Christmas trade. But the reality is there is a dire shortage of workers. And I think the thing that's hard for people to understand is why is that the case when at the same time we have 70,000 more people on a job seeker benefit? So I think the government needs to work on both ends, both moving people from welfare into work and ensuring our immigration settings are right. Do you reckon it's just down to the settings or is New Zealand just not seen as such an attractive option for people these days? What, what, do, you, what do you think? Well, I think the sad truth is that New Zealand's restrictive immigration settings over these past couple of years have damaged our international reputation amongst people who might be considering coming here. We saw that when some international rankings came out and New Zealand had slipped to the the bottom bunch. So we're going to have to work really hard on our restoring our reputation as a good place for skilled people from around the world to come and make home. Our final chat with you this year, Nicola, and so on behalf of myself and our team here at First Up and of course our absent frontman Nathan Rariri, thank you very much for making yourself available to us throughout the year and also to Celia and Josh from your team who've, who've made this happen. What are your plans for, for the summer, Nicola? Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on First Up and I think you've got a wonderful community of early morning listeners who I often bump into and who feel like they've been part of an ongoing conversation with me. And this summer uh, we are taking the kids on a road trip. We're off to oh. the Coromandel which is very exciting. We're going to take them to the iconic places, Hotwater Beach, Cathedral Cove, yes. uh, and we're hoping it'll be really special. And that was Nicola Willis. Finally, this morning, some of your feedback. Morena, and I love the jumping off the bridge, and if I lived closer, I'd join you guys to celebrate my 86th birthday. But Nolene will be jumping off the Upper Kaipara. Thank you for all of your feedback. Uh, Kim Hill and Corin Dan with Morning Report next. Uh, from all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day. See you tomorrow. I'm Paul Paul.